0: Please turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 4. We're going to be looking at the first 11 verses. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 11, as we continue going through 1 Timothy together. If you don't have a Bible, there's some Bibles at the door. We'd love to give one to you so you can study along with us. Would you stand with me and let's pray and prepare our hearts for the teaching of God's word. Father, we're so thankful that you are the great I Am. As we sang in worship, we know that demons tremble at your name, that you spoke all things into existence, that every day you caused the sun to rise and the sun to set, the moon to come out and the stars. But probably most of all, we're thankful that you love us, that you love us personally and individually. You know us by name. You created us. We're created in your image. And we just ask that you would Infuse your power upon your word. Jesus, we're here to draw near to you, to get to know you, to be transformed by you, but we don't want to just go through the motions or have tradition. So God, would you move in our lives in a powerful way for your glory in the name of Jesus. Amen. You can have a seat. Consider with me this phrase, always profitable, always profitable profitable? What things could we say are absolutely always profitable? I mean, really? Well, maybe it could be Apple Macintosh's stock. If you were wise enough when they were at their low to buy some stock in 1985, you'd be doing pretty well today, wouldn't you? Last year or two years ago, 2012, their annual revenue was $156 billion. They're the most public-traded company. I've heard that they have more cash on hand than the United States government, which I think is probably true and a little bit scary, isn't it? But I don't know that Apple is always Profitable. I mean, there is a, a bite that's been taken out of the apple as you look at their logo, and you could definitely make a case, especially when it comes to the really important things, that it may not always be profitable. But tonight, God's going to tell us in His Word something that's always profitable, not from a financial sense, but from what matters in eternity and what matters to God in our lives tonight, it's godliness. We're gonna be exhorted to exercise ourselves in godliness. So if you're taking notes, there's a division here. The first five verses, it shows us what not to do. It's a group of people that are departing from the faith. They're doing the exact opposite of what's always profitable, exercising themselves in godliness. And then from verse six down to verse 11 is where we get our exhortation to apply ourselves in following hard after Jesus Christ. So the message of these 11 verses is you're headed in a direction. Tonight you're headed in a direction. You're either slowly drifting and departing from your faith or you're growing. You're hungering after the things of Christ. And a lot of times we think, well, we can just kind of be complacent, and we can kind of go through the motions, but in fact, our lives do have direction. In verse one of chapter four, now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, the Spirit expressly says. There's two voices in verse 1, isn't there? There's the voices of demons and deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. But there's the, also the voice of the Spirit. And the Spirit speaking, expressing, and passion. Don't miss this. That something's going to happen in latter days. And the Bible speaks a lot about latter days. There's going to be a point when Christ returns when all of this is going to be wrapped up, don't you look forward to that day when the King of Kings, Jesus Christ, the great I Am, lands upon Mount Olives? Many things leading up ultimately to the coming of Jesus Christ. But one of those things is the spiritual condition of people's hearts. And in these latter days, there's going to be a movement of a demonic realm. And these demons are actually going to propagate doctrines of deception. This is something that we don't like to think about very often, do we? But what is it that's causing people to depart from Jesus Christ, to leave their faith? Satan would love to be the author of that. He's the author of confusion, he's the father of lies. So we tend to just look at the surface of false teaching and we don't understand that Satan's behind it. What's one of the quickest ways to get people to go to hell? to try to convince them that they're good enough through religion and they don't need Jesus Christ to die on the cross for their sins. So you can look at all of these different false religions and they have a demonic origin. It may not be a false religion, but it may be a prideful ideology, a philosophy of one that says I don't need God, one that says I'm gonna be an atheist and ultimately it goes back to this demonic realm. So we see who's speaking. We see that the Spirit's speaking, but also that Satan is speaking as well. And notice who he's able to get the ear of, of those who have faith. And they depart from the faith. And this is where they end up. And that's probably the most tragic thing of our text this morning, is you have a group of people at one particular point that had faith in God, They were pressing into the things of God, but they departed. They drifted away because of what they were listening to. This is your job. It's not mine, but it's yours. I have the same responsibility before God, but someday you're going to stand before the Lord for what you believe. And you can't just take someone's word for it. You can't take my word for it or Pastor Ed's word for it or Pastor Kent's word for it or you can't take Grace FM's word for it or your favorite commentary's word for it. You've got to go to the word of God. And we know when FBI agents are trained to find counterfeit money, what do they spend their time with? They spend their time with the genuine. They don't spend their time with fake $100 bills. They spend their time with real $100 bills so they can then spot the counterfeit. And that's going to be the case when you're in the word of God, when you know Jesus Christ, and you're going to go, this doesn't settle right. This doesn't line up with the word of God. You'll be able to find the chapter and verse. But I find verse one to be eye-opening, don't you? That there is this demonic attack that these demons are actually coming up with doctrines. Think about that for a second. Doctrines of demons. What's doctrine? It's claiming the teaching of God. That's why it's so dangerous. It's not just that they're out there telling lies, but they're out there telling lies about God and who God is and what God stands for and the way to salvation. So we now look from verse 2 to verse 5 of these that have fallen into these deceiving spirits. We know who they're listening to, but now we see what they speak, speaking lies and hypocrisy. So, when they speak, they're speaking lies. These false teachers are saying false things about God and they're saying false things about people. And how are they doing it? They're doing it in hypocrisy, they're doing it in duplicity. They say one thing, but they do another. And you should examine the fruit of someone's life. Jesus taught us that you'll know them by their fruits. Wolves, they eat sheep. And so you should watch the diet of someone. And if they're preying on and they're devouring the body of Jesus Christ, you should look for the fruit in their lives. But these are speaking lies about God, about God's people, and they're doing it in hypocrisy. And this is a verse that should stand out, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. If you've ever wondered, how does a false teacher get to the place where he can lie in the name of God? You take a particular false religion and the leaders of that false religion and you go, do they know that they're wrong? Maybe, maybe not. But some of them do. Some of them know that they're propagating lies and when they first started, it drove them nuts. It's just like the first time when we tell a lie in a particular area. Your spouse asks you and you really don't lie. You just don't tell the whole truth, right? And all of a sudden, your conscience is like... Don't do it, right? But then you step over that and you step over it and at some point you can sear your conscience. So we see who they're listening to. They're listening to demons. We see what they're speaking, but we also see what they've seared, what they've cut off, like a nerve that no longer feels. It no longer has feeling. And Could it be in some area of our life tonight that you've cut off your, your conscience, Remember, we've talked about conscience in this study of 1 Timothy. It's your moral compass that God's put inside of believers and unbelievers to alert that, hey, this is wrong. The Holy Spirit works through our conscience and heightens our our conscience. So we should be very careful to not continue into sin, to not step over these boundaries that God has given to us because at some point we'll lose feeling. But you're not beyond hope if your conscience is seared tonight. And you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit. Because God's a good God. Amen? Amen. And as we come to him in brokenness and repentance, we confess our sin to God, we agree with God about our sin, he's going to forgive our sin. He's going to bring us back into that right place. In verse 3, this is what they teach. We've seen what they forbid, but this is what they teach. In verse 3, forbidding to marry And commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. False teachers always take away from God's word or add to God's word and many times both. (laughs) Many times both. And these guys are adding to God's word in this area of legalism. And they're saying if you really love Christ, then you're not going to be married thinking that anything in the physical was less spiritual. This false teaching had got propagated to such a point that Jesus didn't rise from the dead physically because, well, that's not spiritual to have a physical body. But we know that's heresy, isn't it? Jesus had a physical body, that the spiritual is good, but also that the physical is good, that God has created the physical So false teachers will often come in and they'll want to add to the commands of God's word. And we oftentimes are really guarded about not taking away from God's word as we should be, but you be careful that you don't add commands to God's word either. You don't lay heavy trips on people that God hasn't put there. If God said this is a blessing, enjoy it, and then you're saying in God's name, no, God frowns on that because you're the heavy I love Jesus guy, you're the, oh yeah, I've got the, the right on this. No, you're ripping people off from the life that God has for them. And that's what these guys were doing. They were coming in and you could picture them with all their spiritual talk and oh, I see that you've got a real love for God and you're engaged. Uh, yeah, God forbids for you to be married. If you really want to have a life that's sold out to Christ, then, then you'll, you'll be single And we know that God has called some to be single and 1 Corinthians 7 addresses that, the freedom that's found in in serving in your singleness. But in no way is God condemning marriage or God saying that marriage is to be forbidden. And also food, that food is to be enjoyed and it's to be received with thankfulness unto God. So not only are they saying, hey, you, you can't be married, but you know that bacon cheeseburger over there? Well, you can have the beef, and you can have the bun if it's gluten-free. If it's gluten-free, you can have the bun. But you can't have the bacon. And see, it wasn't an issue of health. They're not arguing health here. They're arguing spirituality. They're saying if you, if you really love God, then you, you won't have the bacon. Or, you know, that ice cream there? If you, if you really love the Lord, you, you would not have that, that ice cream. And what's God saying here? It's to be enjoyed, that God created these things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Marriage is really under attack and always has been. And have you ever wondered why? Why is marriage under attack? Because it bears the image of Christ in the church, Ephesians 5, that husbands love their wives as Christ loves the church. That wives, you submit to your husbands as the church submits to Jesus Christ. So Satan's always going to attack marriage. And we look back historically, and the Roman Catholics' position on marriage is we go back, back. It's changed now. But they were really limiting marriage to the point where there were certain days where you couldn't be uh, (laughs) intimate with your spouse now you wonder why there was a reformation. I think it was pretty obvious, right? <laughs> the, the days continued to grow where you weren't supposed to have sex with your, with your spouse. And then finally someone said, I, I've had enough of this, you know? And there's almost this idea that sex is bad. No, sex isn't bad. It's good inside of marriage. The marriage bed is honorable unto the Lord. And so there's been many throughout the years who have fallen into this place where they don't see marriage the way that God has designed it. And ultimately the enemy is behind it. This week, I want to tell you a little bit more about what we had the opportunity to do. Amber and I, this cruise that we went on, it was with Family Life. And if you've heard of Family Life, Dennis Rainey, he's on the radio. They do Weekend to Remember. So the cruise left on Monday out of Miami and we came back on Friday, and there were sessions on marriage. And it was like, God, you're so cool. Here I have been learning about marriage and growing in my marriage all week, and then I get to share on the importance of marriage. And the whole week, God was just strengthening our marriage. He was blessing our marriage and doing a lot of things. And it's probably in ways that you wouldn't expect, because just before we're starting to go, you know, you've got all this excitement and anticipation. One of our kids gets the stomach flu. And in the back of your mind, you're going, you know, we've never been on a cruise before. I hope that we're not in that little room with those small bathrooms and get the stomach flu. So it's Sunday night, we're in a hotel in Fort Lauderdale, and I'm feeling my stomach go, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, you know how it is. You're like, I don't think I've got it, maybe I've got it, and you, I don't think I've got it, and you've got it, right? But, so I get sick Monday morning, and the shuttle's supposed to pick us up at 10 to take us to the boat, and I'm just praying, I hope I don't lose it in this van, right? <laughs> I, hope, I hope I don't upchuck right here on, on this, this, this driver. And then Amber starts going, I, I feel kind of sick. I don't know. I, I hope I don't got it. And, and we're driving, and she's starting to feel sick. And there's like close to 3,000 people on this cruise, and They all got to get on the same boat. So it's the worst possible place to be having the stomach flu. So thankfully, we make it through the line and we get on the boat. And as soon as we get on the boat, Amber says, can we get to our room? And we ask guest services. And they say, well, normally you can't till 1.30. It's 11.30. We've got two hours. And I say, well, she's sick. So can we, is there any way? And they were so gracious. They got us to our room. As soon as we got in the room, she gets sick. And so we're laying on the bed there, just kind of hanging out. And then all of a sudden, you hear this music, and it's the Love Boat, you know, <laughs> song. It's going on. And no joke, during the Love Boat song, she's yakking in the bathroom, right? <laughs> and then the family life, Bob Lapine guy gets on over the thing, and he's like, welcome to your love-like-you-mean-it cruise. And we're like, we're loving like we mean it. Yeah! You know, this is this is awesome. And and the Lord's using that and just causing us to grow closer to each other. And so the week goes on and Tuesday we're starting to feel a little bit better. and, And we made the classic Colorado mistake, right? You just get so excited about the sun and the warmth. And so we just sat out there for like seven, eight hours after having stomach flu. And I don't think sunscreen works for that long, right? So by like Tuesday night we're the lobster on the menu. And so Wednesday we get to Grand Turk Island and things are looking up and we're going all right this is we're feeling better the sunburn's okay and so we're like one of the first ones off the boat at eight in the morning and we decide we're going to rent a scooter. Right? So we, we get on the scooter and you can go ahead and laugh right now because <laughs> can you imagine me on a scooter? I mean so we're on the scooter and we're we're buzzing around the island and we're starting to just feel great and it's a, this oneness experience and Amber's saying, you know, I just got this feeling like we're going to get in trouble. Like we're in another culture and we're getting out of the tourist areas and I'm like, I love this. This is my favorite, you know? I've been on missions trips and it's so fun to just be out in another culture and just kind of living on the the edge like that. And before you know it, we were on the edge and we just kind of turned a corner and we wrecked that moped, (laughs) you know, and we're bleeding. And she's got Amber's all, you know, you could talk to her tonight. She's right over here and she's, you know, just hamburger up the side and the bike had fell on her foot. And so we ended up getting out of that situation only having to pay forty extra bucks, the guy was very gracious, and we were we were both okay. But she had a sprained ankle, and and you know God was using all that, and but we really did have a good time. It was, and if you ever get a chance to do anything with family life, I think you'll be really blessed. They have weekend to remembers here in Colorado Springs and in Denver, and they they do many events through, throughout. Out the year, and I, and I share all that to share this, that marriage really is beautiful and wonderful. You know Amber and I have been married for 12 years, and I, I know some of you have been married for 40 years, and the longer you 're married, the greater the joy is. And even in the midst of things like stomach flu and wrecking a moped and all of the different things that you go through with with life, I came away at the end of this week going, man, I'm so thankful, even more so for my wife. You know, we're strengthened in our bond and we've got a great story to be able to tell and share, I'm sure someday, with, with our grandkids. And somehow I want to speak to your heart. You've got a theology about marriage is what you believe that God says about marriage. And do you see it as a blessing from the Lord, whether you're single or you're married? And do you kind of take, some for some reason, this kind of attitude of, well, well, marriage should be for, forbidden. We're the ones that should understand and receive marriage with thankfulness. Again, if you're called to be single, receive that with thankfulness but if you're called to be married if you're already married or you're going to be married in the future receive it with thankfulness and don't start to think that somehow that that marriage is being less spiritual no it's exactly what God designed and to be receive it with thankfulness and the food to be able to receive with thankfulness so let's go on with these next few verses for it says for every creature of God is good and nothing is to be refused if it is received with thankfulness for it is sanctified by the word of God and with prayer. So we should be enjoying marriage to the utmost because we understand the author and the creator of it. Also, we should be enjoying our food more than someone who doesn't know Christ as our savior. And it gets a little tough sometimes at mealtimes to really stop and be thankful for our food. But this is a great habit to do. And it's not so much about the words that you say, but your heart of God. I know there's people starving in the world, but you've given this to me. And not only have you given this to me, but you've made it taste good. And you've come up with things like lemon pepper and cayenne pepper and, and oh, spice. And Father, you're such a good God. And you taste something that you really like and you, oh, Lord, you're just so good. And I'm looking forward to the marriage feast of the lamb. It includes marriage and food, but I don't think it stops there. When we see a sunset, we should be the most thankful because we know the author of that sunset. I think that Christians should be appreciate art. Good moral art, obviously not art of some kind of per, you know perverse nature, but good and, and wholesome. Even if the person who painted it is an unbeliever. Why? Because that's a gift that's given from God. That's not something in and of themselves. That's something that God gave to them. You shouldn't be afraid of it. You should be able to go into an art gallery and go, God, you are so good. Just like I can appreciate a really good cheeseburger, I can appreciate this painting. We should be able to thank the Lord, just like we would thank the Lord for food, to thank the Lord for for good music. I mean, why would the devil get all of the good music? If for some reason you think that, well, this grand piano over here, it's holy. And these drums back here, well, that's Satan. This is, this is holy here. And this is Satan. Satan's back there. You know? That's nonsense. That's absolutely nonsense. Why? Because God created it all. So enjoy it. Go, wow, that's kind of a good little beat right there you know and sometimes as Christians we're just the most square people on the planet right and we can easily be the most unthankful people on the planet and can grumble and we can complain and allow these verses to just start to transform your idea of thankfulness and how many things can I be thankful for that God has done marriage and food being on the list but so many more being on the list as well We get to verse 6 through verse 11. We've seen those who depart, but now we see this instruction to apply ourselves to godliness. Verse 6, if you instruct the brethren in these things, this is speaking to Timothy, he's supposed to teach the church of Ephesus these things. Remember our theme of the book of 1 Timothy, it's legacy. Paul's passing this to Timothy, Timothy's passing it to the church. It's all about relationship. So, what is he to instruct them in? What is he to teach? He says, You will be a good minister of Jesus Christ. That's what really matters. It's not what people think about Timothy, but was Timothy faithful to Jesus Christ? Was he a good servant unto Jesus Christ? Nourished in the words of faith and of good doctrine, which you carefully followed. So, first we find what Timothy is supposed to teach. He's supposed to teach words of faith. And also good doctrine. If he does this, then the people of God are nourished. They're nourished. Just like you have a child who gets the things that the child needs, the nourishment, the child's gonna grow. And when God's people get words of faith and sound doctrine, they're gonna grow. They're going to be encouraged. Timothy's to be that one in the church that speaks words of faith and encouragement. I don't mean something kind of weird and wacky. Not this name it and claim it, blab it and grab it, everything's going to go your way. But when things are difficult, that Timothy's there standing on the promises of God and he's speaking the words of faith to be anchors in people's souls. That's going to bring nourishment. Do you want to see people around you be nourished and grow in the Lord? Then speak words of faith. When everyone else is complaining, when everyone else is bringing discouragement, you bring what God's word says. In a caring way, in a loving way, through relationship, but speak the words of faith. And then Timothy's supposed to speak good doctrine. This contrasts the false doctrine of the false teachers, the doctrine of demons. So what is good doctrine? It's the word of God. The word of God is where we get sound doctrine. How do we know who God is and what God stands for? The way of salvation, it's through the word of God. Timothy's to teach the word of God. Not only is he teaching the word of God, but he's carefully following the word of God. Before Timothy ever shared as a pastor, he was committed to Jesus Christ and to following Jesus Christ. This is the opposite of the false teachers whose life is marked by hypocrisy. And Acts chapter one, speaking of Jesus, it says the things that he did and taught. The doing was before the teaching. Something that happens when we share with somebody is we think because we shared it and we know it intellectually well enough to be able to communicate it verbally that somehow that means that we've mastered it and we live it. No, not at all. This message is just as much, if not more so for me, every single week. God's challenging me. He's speaking to me. And I need to examine myself to see, am I carefully following? And you ask yourself that same question. Am I carefully following? Maybe you like to share God's word with your kids. Oh, that's so good. But are you also concerned with, am I following the instruction That I'm I'm giving. Timothy's to carefully follow this. He's to teach it, but he's also to follow it. But he's got something that he needs to reject in verse 7. But reject profane and old wives' fables and exercise yourself towards godliness. We've touched on this in prior studies, but there were those in the church of Ephesus that were taking some of the genealogies in the Old Testament names of people that we don't know anything about, and they were making up stories upon stories, wives' tales. They weren't rooted in the scripture, and it was ripping, off, ripping out and ripping off the people of God. And in order to exercise yourself for godliness, there's things that you have to reject. And there's some conversations that are even spiritual in the sense that they're about God but they're not about the truth of of God's word. And you've got to sort through that and say, I don't have time for this. I don't have time for this story over here, this wives' tale over here that doesn't have any substance in God's word. The way that you're going to know what to reject is by being in the word of God. One of my favorite books is the book of Nehemiah. He built the wall around the temple that was just built in 52 days and he was constantly fighting the battle of distraction. The enemy was coming to him saying, you need to come and have this discussion in the Valley of Ono. And every time Nehemiah said no to the Valley of Ono, what did he continue to do? He continued to build the wall. If you're gonna have spiritual muscles, if you're gonna be spiritually buff, if you're gonna be godly, and godliness profits all all things, then you've gotta reject some things in order to have time to apply yourself to godliness. Definitely these old wives' fables, the things that are profane, but think for just a moment before we get into the meat of verse 7, all the things that we waste time on. And if we could reject some of those things and use that time to exercise ourselves towards godliness, how much fruit would come. So continuing in verse 7, Exercise yourself towards godliness. Now, some of you just totally checked out right there. Just because I used the word exercise, you're like, that's my least favorite word. Yes and amen. I'm with you on that, right? But it's not the physical exercise. It's an exercise towards godliness, This word exercise in the Greek has the idea of an Olympic athlete, check this, who's competing naked. No thanks, right? But in Paul's day, they would actually compete naked because they didn't want anything to hinder them in their competition. What a great time for God to bring this to us. You've probably been watching the Olympics. I see some USA Olympic shirts this evening that U.S. games are happening. The winter games are happening right now. And we look at those athletes and they're an example of discipline, aren't they? They had to reject certain things, put themselves on a regiment. They had to get after it. They wouldn't be an Olympic athlete if they didn't discipline themselves. And what God is telling Timothy and telling us tonight is you've got to exercise yourself toward godliness. You've got to get after it. You've got to go for it. You've got to put yourself on a spiritual regimen. We want godliness in our lives. Then we've got to say, I got to get into the word of God. I got to get after it with prayer. I've got to memorize some scripture. And you're saying, well, wait a second. It sounds a lot like legalism. Please don't misunderstand. Legalism is trying to earn or deserve salvation, God's favor. I've got to read my Bible to be saved. I've got to memorize scripture in order to have God's favor. This is the amazing thing about the cross, and I hope you understand this, and it warms your heart this evening, is Christianity approaches as the verdict has already been completed. And what's that verdict? What does the cross tell us tonight? that it is done, it is finished. You go to the courtroom, I go to the courtroom, we're guilty before God, but Jesus stands as our advocate and he says, it is finished, I paid for Eric, I died for Eric, he has my love, he has my favor, he's justified, he's declared righteous. And it's from that place of understanding the gospel that we then apply the gospel in godliness. I'm not trying to earn or deserve God's favor, I already have it. And I'm responding to that grace and using that grace, saying, Lord, would you help me now to be able to apply myself to godliness? Look at the end of chapter 3, because I think it's important to remember the context. Verse 16, 1 Timothy 3, verse 16. You guys still with me? You doing okay? Okay. It says... And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. So who is godliness? It's Jesus. He's the mystery of godliness. And as he's completed the work for us, we appropriate that. We apply the gospel to our hearts in our lives. So please understand the difference between discipline and the legalism, but there is an appropriate place for discipline in our lives. We're being challenged to exercise ourselves toward godliness. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians 9, because Paul explains discipline in his life. 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 27, and it is the picture of an athlete. And picture in your mind your favorite Olympic athlete as you've been enjoying these winter games. This is 1 Corinthians 9, verse 24 through 27. Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain. Got a lot of athletes competing in the Olympics, but there's only one gold medalist per event. And everyone who competes for the prize Is temperate in all things. Now they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we an imperishable crown. They've got to obey the rules or they get disqualified. Unfortunately, the Olympics has been infamous for some athletes found doping, right? And so they lose their medals and it gets stripped from them as they're drug tested. And so he's saying they obey the rules so that they can have a crown that perishes. Time has a way of trashing your trophies. If you were a state champion in high school, nobody knows today and nobody cares, right? (laughs) Time has a way of trashing your trophies and it's a perishable crown. But we're striving for a crown that's not perishable. Verse 26, therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, thus I fight, not as one who beats the air. I don't waste my time, I don't waste my effort, I don't go around beating the air. But I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I've preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. Paul doesn't want to stand up and share Jesus and be disqualified because of the way he's living his life. So he says, I've got to discipline my body. I've got to beat my body into subjection. I've got to exercise myself towards godliness. Church, this is where rubber meets the road, is there's going to be some mornings where you wake up and you're like, oh, I just want to read my Bible today. And you've got all of the right emotions that lead up with reading your Bible. And then there's other days where you're going to wake up and you're going to say, the last thing I want to do on the planet today is read my Bible. And that's when discipline comes into play. And we discipline our body. And we go, God, I know you're good. I know this is your love letter. And even though I don't feel like it today, I'm gonna enter into it. Have you ever pushed through discipline and got to delight? Got all the feeling of drudgery and discipline, but then ultimately you get to that place Of delight, Maybe you've thought for some reason in your Christian life that it's always just going to come easy or you're always going to feel like it or some magical thing is just going to happen and then everything's going to come in place. Sometimes God moves that way. But more often than not, He wants us to discipline ourselves. He wants us to get after it. Not to do it in our own strength, but to apply ourselves, relying upon His strength and saying, I need this godly discipline in my life. If you're still with me, go back to 1 Timothy chapter four and we see the reason why. This is the the reason why that we're to apply ourselves to godliness. In verse eight, for bodily exercise profits a little. That's my life verse right there. No, it does profit a little. And I've actually changed my tune in that a little bit. I've actually started to exercise some. It does have a benefit. Anything that the Bible says has a little bit of benefit is a good. It profits a little. But godliness is profitable for all things, having a promise of life that now is and of that which is to come. Always profitable. There it is godliness is always profitable you're never going to regret godly character in your life never ever it has the promise in this life and in the life to come what's the greatest gift that you can give to your spouse godliness what's the greatest gift that you can give to your kids godliness if you're single what's the greatest gift that you can give to the body of christ to your friends godliness what's going to benefit you the most at work godliness And I'm not talking that it's going to result in paycheck and a promotion and more money, but God's going to be glorified in your work. And you're going to be able to be a testimony of Jesus Christ. It's going to be profitable at work. Every place that we step our foot through this life, godliness is going to be profitable. It says this about Jesus in Hebrews. He was anointed with gladness above all of his fellows because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. Jesus was the happiest guy on the planet because he hated wickedness and he loved righteousness. Holiness, it means wholeness. It means wholeness. See, godliness, it's the best thing for my life. That's why I never regret it. So sin is a moment of pleasure for a lifetime of pain. We choose the pleasure. If anybody tells you that there's no fun in sin, they're lying to you. There is. Sin is pleasurable for a very short season. Then it bites hard, doesn't it? But godliness is a moment of pain. We have to deny those pleasures, those sinful pleasures. We've talked about those pleasures that are good, that God intends for us to receive, but we've got to deny those sinful pleasures, but then it results in a lifetime of blessing. It's worth it, it's always worth it. Exercise yourself towards godliness. It's profitable now, but it's also profitable in the kingdom. Jesus told us to be concerned about our reward in heaven and laying up treasures in heaven. I think the greatest reason why is because we get to lay down those treasures at the feet of Jesus. We get to lay those crowns down at the feet of Jesus. Verse nine, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance. For to this end, we both labor and suffer reproach. So he's laboring, he's suffering reproach. There's work that's going in on Paul's part because we trust in the living God who is the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Living a godly life, laboring, it is going to result in reproach. But in the midst of persecution, we're able to trust a living God. Just take a deep breath for a moment. It's okay. Just do it. Trust a living God. In this midst of applying ourselves to godliness, it's not removing our trust in God and putting it upon ourselves. It's trusting in the Lord. It looks something like this. God, I can't do this on my own. I've tried to a hundred times before, a thousand times before, and I've failed. But you tell me in your word that you want me to live this way, so I'm going to try again today. And I'm going to ask for the power of your Holy Spirit. And when I come with this temptation, would you help me to say no? We're trusting in a a living God. If the Lord allows godliness as a fruit in our lives, but then there is persecution, we trust that to the living God. Say, okay, Lord, this is what you have for me. You died You paid the price, and I trust you. He was the savior of all men, especially those who believe. Jesus died for all, but it's only those who believe who are saved. These things command and teach. Timothy's to command these things, but he's also to teach these things. There's a time, lovingly, to give an exhortation, to get into someone's face. That's the command part. But then there's also a time to teach. There needs to be a balance in both Of those things. So here's a few applications tonight. They're going to come up on the screen, and the reason for that is maybe write them down, pray about them, but we want to apply these things. And the first is this. Deception from the enemy is very real. Deception from the enemy is very real. There's doctrines of demons. There's those that will depart from the faith in the latter days. So we want to be very careful for what we believe, what we follow, especially what we believe about God. And then the second is sound doctrine is to be carefully followed. Sound doctrine is to be carefully followed. Sound doctrine is the word of God, and the word of God is to be carefully followed. Maybe you're finding yourself that God's word's boring. Here's just one thing tonight that may just be a little jolt to your system. Every time you come to Bible study, come asking God to show you one thing to apply to your life. Every time you open your Bible, in your devotions, in your quiet time, get a pen and paper and say, God, show me one thing that I need to apply to my life. I want to be a doer of your word. Doctrine needs to be carefully followed in our lives. And then the last is this, is get after it get after it. Start exercising and exercise yourself in godliness. Find an area that you're weak in and apply yourself and go for it. Say, Lord, I want to be more godly in this way. And instead of believing the lies of the enemy, remember, you're coming from the final verdict already. It is done. It is finished. You're loved by God. He's forgiven you of your sins. Jesus has done all of those things that we read at the end of chapter three, but now it's time to to get after it. And maybe it is making sure that you have time in the word, making sure that you have time in prayer. Maybe it's a certain area of, of struggle that continues to bring defeat in our lives, to press into the Lord and say, okay, God, I'm gonna exercise myself in godliness. I'm gonna go for it in this area of godliness and then watch the Lord bring the fruit but we know this it's always going to be profitable it's always going to benefit everywhere we go in this life and in the life to come so what's going to change a week from now we've got seven days a lot can change 21 days forms a new habit what new habits do you want to have in 21 days Remember, it's not legalism, it's discipline. Why would we even be concerned with discipline? Because he first loved us. See, when we realize his love for us, then that motivates us and moves us to a place of discipline. You look at young couples when they're dating, and you might call it discipline that they spend time for each other. They call it love, don't they? See, there's a certain amount of discipline that's in my life when it comes to my marriage, but I don't consider it discipline because I love my wife. Because she's my wife. I like spending time with her. I like that she's the woman for me. And so that means all the other women in the world, they're not for me. But I don't describe that as discipline or duty. It's birthed out of love. And see, when we get God's love for us when we get the relationship... I don't want you to hear tonight in this some 24-hour fitness speech, like, hey, you know what? You want to get in shape spiritually? Then get after it. Get after it. Go for it, you know. You can be so spiritually buff that everybody's going to envy you. It's going to be awesome. No, that's not what I want you to hear. I want you to hear the still, small voice of the Spirit that says, I love you hear the voice of Jesus. He says, I died for you. You're my son. You're you're my daughter. I want to be in relationship with you. And we respond to that relationship and we apply ourselves to godliness. We say, I want to get this because I want to be close to God. Probably the greatest motivation for godliness is in the Sermon on the Mount. It says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. How is this ungodliness preventing me from seeing God, and I desire godliness worked in my life so I can see God in a greater way. That's the motivation. That's the heart behind discipline. Let's stand.